It's your Mormon Land hosts, Peggy Fletcher Stack and David Noyce. We are celebrating more than 300 episodes of the podcast by bringing you Mormon Land Live. Join us on September 14th at the University of Utah for a special conversation featuring historian Richard Bushman and scholar Claudia Bushman. Tickets to Mormon Land Live are free with a required RSVP. You can find all the information at the link in our show notes. We'll see you on September 14th at Mormon Land Live. Thanks for joining us today on Mormon Land, where we explore news in and about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm Managing Editor Dave Noyce. I oversee the Salt Lake Tribune's faith coverage. I'm joined by Senior Religion Reporter Peggy Fletcher-Stack. Hello, Peggy. Hi, Dave. We remind our listeners about another way to support Mormon Land. Just go to patreon.com, where with a donation as small as $3 a month, you can access transcripts to our podcast, our complete newsletter, and all of our exclusive religion coverage. Again, that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Mormonland. Now for today's show. Kolob, the star, quote, nearest to where God dwells, quote, worlds without number and, quote, worlds, plural, are and were created. Yes, these Latter-day Saint scriptures seem to affirm that in Mormonism, we are not alone in the universe. Given that theology, it appears there is space, so to speak, for members to believe or have an interest in alien beings, intergalactic travelers, extraterrestrial visitors, and, well, UFOs. Fascination, curiosity, and intrigue surrounding unidentified anomalous phenomena have swelled in recent weeks since Congress staged hearings in July on the subject. All of this makes Latter-day Saint historian Matthew Bowman's new book all the more timely, topical, and telling, titled The Abduction of Betty and Barney Hill, Alien Encounters, Civil Rights, and the New Age in America. The volume explores the beginning of the UFO phenomenon, its intersection with U.S. society, and its implications for religion. Bowman joins us today in studio to talk about how these otherworldly encounters affect our world. Matt, welcome. Thank you for having me. Okay, so why take up the topic of UFOs? Oh, well, you mentioned some reasons there. It feels in- increasingly topical, I think, um, over the last five or six years. But you know, when I begin the book, about the same time that the New York Times revealed that there had been a long-term you know, Pentagon office investigating the phenomena of what they call UAP, and identified it aerial phenomena, mm-hmm. I was particularly interested in the impact of this story on American religion and American culture because those are my specialties. I was interested in how American religions grappled with technology, um, with the idea of the modern world, with the sense that um, science right, is increasingly an explanatory mechanism that we rely on. And UFOs seem to be a phenomenon that overlaps all of these things, right? For some people, they're very scientific. For some people, they are literally extraterrestrial craft built on other planets flown to this world. But for other people, they're religious, they're spiritual, they're not technological at all. And this ground then I think is just a really fascinating phenomenon on which we might investigate um, those intersections. When did Americans start talking about UFOs? There's two ways to answer that. Um, One is... All the way back, right? If you go back to Native Americans, to the Puritans, they saw strange things in the sky. Um, They called them angels or demons or spirits, right? But the modern age of the UFO begins in 1947. And with a 
report that might have been just one of many, right? A pilot named Kenneth Arnold, um, who was in his plane um, near Mount Rainier, Washington, lands, and he tells people when he lands that he saw several strange objects um, bouncing, he almost said, kind of undulating up and down and up and down like a stone skipping over water um, near the mountain. Now, because this was 1947, um, because this is right after World War II, because this is at a time um, when Americans were afraid of bombers, they were afraid of rockets, they were afraid of things in the sky, and they assumed these things in the sky must be technology. And that is what the reporters who picked up Kenneth Arnold's story believed, mm-hmm. that they were flying saucers and eventually UFOs, right? That is why um, as these things begin to be reported, right? As I said, people have been seeing strange things in the sky for years and years and years. Um, But as more and more stories get picked up in the newspaper, um, reporters start calling them all the same thing, saying these are all flying saucers. The military begins investigating under the same assumption soon after, and the military calls them unidentified flying objects. The assumption is their technology. Um, whether it be from the Soviet Union or China or whether it be from other planets. So who were Betty and Barney Hill? Betty and Barney Hill are the first Americans who claim not simply to see one of these strange objects, uh, but to be abducted by creatures inside them. Uh, They are a New Hampshire couple. They're interracial, um, which is interesting um, for the response that they get. Betty is white. When was this? This is 1961. Okay. Um, Betty is white. Barney is black. And in they're married in May 1960. In September 1961, they take a trip to Montreal, uh, a driving trip from their home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. On September 19th, 1961, they're on their way back. They are driving home uh, through the state of New Hampshire on a lonely highway late at night, and they see a light that begins following them. They pull over several times to look at this light. They have a set of binoculars, and they look at it through binoculars. And at one point, Barney who is out of his car looking at this thing with binoculars, becomes really terrified. He leaps back in the car. He's screaming about how they're going to get us, and they drive home. When they arrive home, they notice it's about three hours later than they thought they should have arrived home. And that's the end of it for a moment. Betty begins having nightmares soon after. Um, Nightmares of being taken into a strange craft by small creatures. Um, Barney develops an ulcer. Uh, begins having panic attacks. And about three years later, they visit a psychiatrist who hypnotizes them. And under hypnosis, they tell a story of the craft landing on the road, taking them into it, subjecting them to medical experiments. They describe these creatures as being small, gray-skinned, with uh, large slanting eyes. All of these things have become cliché. Now, when Americans exactly. think of aliens, yes. right, they think of these small gray creatures. Picture. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. It's Betty and Barney who developed that idea. The story of being taken aboard a craft, being subjected to medical experimentation. Betty and Barney are the first Americans to talk about that. That has also become cliche. Thus, this what some scholars call the myth. And not to say, you know, myths are false, right? But myth is kind of an ur narrative, an archetype of how these things work. It begins with Betty and Barney Hill, and it's been repeated and repeated and repeated on movies, on television, on the X-Files and popular culture ever since. So the title of your book includes things like civil rights and new age. Wouldn't necessarily 
automatically connect those. How does how does civil rights or new age connect to yeah. UFOs. That is a great question. And this is one of the things that fascinates me about Betty and Barney Hill. Their abduction occurs in 1961. Um, and I think over the course of the next 10 years of their lives, they go through a microcosm what American culture in general undergoes, which is to say a fragmentation, a breakdown. Um, Betty and Barney in 1961 are fairly conventional Americans, which is to say, like most Americans, they trusted the federal government. There are Gallup polls showing that in 1960, upwards of two or I'm sorry, three quarters of Americans said they believed the government would do the right thing in most or all cases. And that'd, that seems, be, that'd be different now. That seems it? unimaginable yeah. to us now, right? <laughs> um, Betty and Barney Hill are part of that group. Um, they are civil rights advocates. They're members of the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. They're quite involved um, in these things. Um, Barney Hill ends up on a state, uh, the state of New Hampshire, Commission for Civil Rights. They are invited to Lyndon Johnson's 1964 presidential inauguration. Um, Barney Hill attends the March on Washington um, with Martin Luther King in 1963, right? They're very plugged into this sort of thing because they believe that the government has its pa- the power to change um, American society through laws, through regulation, um, that the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, these things will end discrimination in America. Similarly, um, in terms of religion, there are Unitarians, which is about the most kind of ma- white bread, mainstream American uh, mm-hmm. Protestant denomination. But by the end of the decade, after this abduction occurs, they find themselves increasingly moving to the fringes of American society. For one thing, nobody believes them. They go after after this encounter, they go to the Air Force because they believe it's their civic duty as citizens to report this sort of thing. Um, they are largely ignored. They then go to the psychiatrist who hypnotizes them. The story comes out. The psychiatrist tells them he doesn't believe them. He, do, he thinks this is a confabulated memory. It might reflect their emotional realities. That is their sense of stress, their fear, their worry, driving home late at night, but he does not believe they were abducted. They are angry about that as well. And so increasingly, they move out of the mainstream of American life. One of the tragic things I think about this is that Barney Hill never wanted this story to come out. He did not want this story to come out because he believed it would hurt his civil rights work. Um, that people would not take him seriously anymore. And that does happen. There is so much newspaper coverage of this story. It becomes famous. There's a best-selling book written about the Hills. There's a movie with James Earl Jones as Barney um, (laughs) as well. And they become famous. And the more famous they become, the more attacked they are. Um, There are stories published in newspapers and magazines saying that they believe they are abducted because they have psychological problems and they have psychological problems because they are an interracial couple. Um, That sort of thing spreads. And as it spreads, as it spreads, the hills turn increasingly to people who do believe them and who do validate them. And these are people um, who believe in conspiracy theory. These are people involved in the New Age movement, which is rising at this time. The New Age movement, of course, is this massive kind of upsurge of interest in the occult and the esoteric, um, in lost and hidden knowledge in America. We're talking about things like channeling here, um, reincarnation, past lives, psychic powers. Um, These are the people who believe the hills. Hmm. And as the hills then 
look for validation, look for people who believe them, they become increasingly enmeshed in these movements themselves, drawn out of that mainstream of American culture and towards the fringes. And of course, by the end of the 1960s, right, those fringes are in some sense the mainstream of American culture. Did they stay together? They did. Um, Barney Hill died quite suddenly and tragically in 1969 at age 46 mm-hmm. of a cerebral hemorrhage. Um, it was quite shocking and sudden. Uh, um, and I think, right, some of where Betty goes in the 1970s and 1980s, which is even more deeply into the New Age movement, is driven by her grief, her sense of loss, um, her hope to reconnect with her husband somehow. So you wrote a column for the Solid Tribune this week, uh, which listeners can find at sltrib.com, that outlines two ways, essentially, Latter-day Saints have thought about UFOs, one more scientific, the other more mystical. Could you talk about those two approaches? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, these um, echo with some of the same themes in the book as well, right? I'm interested in the ways in which UFOs blur the boundaries between science and religion and force us to kind of examine what we mean by those two categories. And that's a debate, I think, happening um, within the Latter-day Saint community, um, certainly. Now, these are two broad ways in which UFO advocates, right? People in the United States, whether Latter-day Saints or not, who believe in UFOs, think about what these things are. They're not the only two ways. There are some others, but these are the two most popular. Um, The first is called the extraterrestrial hypothesis. This is the idea that simply UFOs are mechanical craft built on other planets and flown here by the people or creatures who built them. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the way of thinking about UFOs that's most common in movies and TV shows and stuff like that. It's also probably um, was the most popular way of thinking about these things in the 1940s and 1950s when Americans first started getting interested in this sort of thing. It's what um, some investigators believed. The other way of thinking about them emerges in the 1960s, and I think in part under the influence of the New Age movement of this way of thinking about reality as being not simply something so prosaic as simply scientific. Um, This is sometimes called the interdimensional hypothesis or the extra-dimensional hypothesis. This is the idea that UFOs are not necessarily machines at all. Rather, they are manifestations of some sort of creatures of intelligences from other dimensions who pop in and out of our dimension. And increasingly advocates of this hypothesis would point to the ways these craft behave in some sightings. That is, they will suddenly stop, they will vanish, they will reappear in different locations. They don't move like regular craft. And the idea here then is that they are beyond our science in some way. They are beyond the science of our dimension. They are beyond the capacity of our scientists to really understand. They are, you know, the word you use is mystical, and that might be a good word to conceive of it. So how does LDS or Mormon theology fit into that? In other words, you know, uh, I started with quoting LDS scripture yeah. that, that talks about Colob and worlds mm-hmm. without end and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So a number, I think, of advocates of the extra dimensional, or I'm sorry, of the extraterrestrial hypothesis within the church view that hypothesis and that way of looking at UFOs as proof of LDS theology, 
And to do this, they will point to some statements from Joseph Smith, but then also ways in which Joseph Smith was interpreted largely by early 20th century LDS theologians. So, of course, from Joseph Smith, we have a number of statements, right? Many from his famous King Follett discourse to the um, to the idea that God is a human being. Um, that human beings are here to learn more and more and more about the laws of the universe and master the universe. Um, and then that will lead us um, to where God is. And there's also, of course, the Pearl of Great Price, this work of scripture Joseph Smith dictated that describes, as you quoted at the top of the hour, right, worlds without number has God created, that describes astronomy in a sense and places God somewhere in the universe near a star named Kolob. Two, a number of early 20th century LDS theologians who were trying very hard to reconcile their faith with science, and this was a very popular pursuit among American Christians in the early 20th century, to prove that their religion was scientific, that there was not science and religion, but only one truth that all um, religion encompasses. A couple of heavyweight names in that, yeah, right? B.H. Roberts, J, um, John Witso, James Talmadge, people like this. Right. They argue that Joseph Smith's astronomy, that these ideas from the King Follett discourse from the Pearl Great Price demonstrate that Joseph Smith actually knew more about the universe than the other scientists of his day did, that he is describing a universe that works scientifically, that God is actually out there on a planet somewhere. He's not in another dimension. He's not in another reality, uh, but that the entire universe is scientific and God is God because he has mastered those natural laws of the universe so well. So to plug that into a Mormon UFO thinker, um, there are a number of them, um, people like, for instance, um, Kenneth Larson, John Heinerman, um, some other writers on UFOs who argue that, in fact, UFOs are craft built by other children of God on other planets who are coming here to observe us. So the, the second part of that, the interdimensional hypothesis now appeals to some other Latter-day Saints who, who, as you describe, don't think these weren't uh, time and space, but actually other dimensions. Who, who thinks that and how does that tie into LDS theology? Yeah, that's a a really interesting um, question because I would say among Latter-day Saint UFO theorists, the extraterrestrial hypothesis is far more popular because it does feel like it has such more grounding in these heavyweight theologians like Talmadge and Roberts and in Joseph Smith as well. Um, Where we're seeing the interdimensional hypothesis enter, I think, is mainly from Latter-day Saints who are influenced uh, by other religious and cultural traditions, Um, in part some of the the New Age movement, right? And people who think about reality in terms of spiritual power, spiritual forces um, that aren't necessarily scientific. And also something um, that is sometimes called the third wave movement in Pentecostalism. Um, Third wave Pentecostals believe that human beings are in the midst of a massive cosmic spiritual battle between good and evil that is happening all around us. So there are um, light creatures and dark creatures um, fighting uh, fighting all the time. We can join that battle through our own spiritual force. Um, this is the sort of theology um, that people like um, the Daybells, for instance, were really plugged mm-hmm. into. Now, when 
We look then to advocates of the interdimensional UFO hypothesis among Latter-day Saints. It, they largely come, I think, from people whose writings and whose spiritual practices echo some of these. Um, we can look at, I think, um, a lot of this burgeoning Oh, kind of culture of near-death experiences among Latter-day Saints. There's been a lot of books published on near-death experiences since the most famous of them all, Betty Eady's book, Embraced by the Light, some 30 years ago. But over the past 15 or 20 years, there's been more and more of these. And many of them, I think, reveal the influence of these ideas of spiritual warfare and of the New Age. And they tend to describe, then, UFOs as not necessarily being cracked but being spiritual manifestations. Um, a couple of examples might um, be, for instance, um, there's a, a near-death experiencer named Sarah Monet who's written a book about that. She argues in her book that she sees while in her near-death experience that supposed aliens coming to Earth are actually evil spirits sent by Satan to confuse and deceive us. Um, there is another named Dana Redfield who wrote an entire book about her own encounters with UFOs um, called Summoned. Um, she argues that UFOs are actually benevolent, but um, they are not just resurrected beings on other planets or other civilizations. They are ascended spiritual beings. Um, and she argues that Joseph Smith actually encountered what he thought was God and Jesus Christ, but were actually aliens um, from uh, um, other dimensions who were speaking to him. She eventually left Mormonism, but she argues in her book that Mormonism was an essential step on her spiritual path because it opened her to the possibility of creatures from other dimensions. That's what I wanted to ask you about. You know, Mormons obviously believe in heavenly visitations. It's, it's, it's at the root of their roots. <laughs> so, so could Joseph Smith's first vision are these angelic visitations be seen as alien encounters? Yeah, in part, right. This is a question of how you define your terms, mm -hmm. right? There are some um, Latter-day Saints. Well, I'm thinking here of a man named Frank Salisbury, who is a professor of uh, botany, I believe, at Utah State University, who wrote a book about UFOs, who argues that Jesus Christ, the angel Moroni, all of these um, beings that Joseph Smith encountered traveled here in wor through wormholes. Um, and this hmm. is very much in the tradition, right, of of John Witzel or B.H. Roberts. Like the universe is just inherently scientific. And the only difference between us and God is that God has mastered science Knows to an science. extent that we have right. not. Right. Um, which is somewhat distinct. Right. Well, for instance, let me um, I'll invoke John Pontius, who is a very, very popular writer um, whose book Visions of Glory recounts the near death experience of a man whom Pontius calls Spencer, um, who. Um, in this book, Pontius describes Spencer describing something Spencer calls spiritual technology, um, which allows then these creatures to move around the universe as quickly as they do, right? Which allows God and Christ to do the kind of supposed miracles um, that they are uh, capable of accomplishing. But for Pontius, this technology is not quite like our science. He argues in this book, right, that you have to have. Um, this sort of revelation and spiritual um, enlightenment in order to understand and to use this technology. It's beyond us in our state right now. Now, that's very, very characteristic um, of the New Age movement. Um, this idea, right, that there is certain kinds of knowledge that people cannot understand unless they have a sort of spiritual enlightenment first. 
um, and we see then I think the, the interdimensional hypothesis influence there. So I'm fascinated by the fact that early Latter-day Saints, Joseph Smith, etc., and then even Helmage Roberts, etc., were interested, didn't see distinction between science and religion, and and they were very comfortable speculating about the moon and all this stuff, including in scripture. But modern Latter-day Saints seem to scoff mainstream. You know, the people you're talking about tend to be more perceived as fringy. What have have Latter-day Saints lost their imagination, their theological imagination? <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's a great question. And I think it gets to one of the, the things that fascinates me about this UFO topic generally um, about the, the sort of changing nature of what science is and what science means. Right. Um, in the 19th century, anybody could be a scientist. Yeah, exactly. Well. Yeah. And, and then the 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 overlaps in them. Yeah. Right. Um, Willard Richards. Right. One of Joseph Smith's great friends um, called himself a doctor. He was a student of Thompsonian in medicine, which today we would say was somewhat fringy, but you know he used that term and he used the title somewhat. One of the things that happens in the 20th century, I think both with science and with Latter-day Saints, is this process of institutionalization and respectability. Especially after the two world wars, science in America becomes increasingly bound in, well, it becomes what one um, participant in the process, Alvin Weinberg, called big science, which is to say science becomes something sponsored largely by the government. There's massive federal funds going to science. It becomes the domain of universities and of trained PhDs. And Almost by default, what it comes to be deemed pseudoscience is that stuff done by people like Will Richards, who are not plugged in to big science. Um, so pseudoscience is created partly through a process of elimination. Science is what's respectable. Science is what is done by people with credentials. It's what's done by people with institutional affiliations. Just so, I think what you see in the church in the 20th century is this increasing um, interest and hope for respectability, for the sense that we are people who are um, serious. We are affiliated with legitimate institutions. Um, we have legitimate training. We wear suits. <laughs> We don't participate in, quote unquote, pseudoscience, in the sort of thing that is pushed to the fringes of the American mainstream. So in the 20th century, right, there is a creation of what is mainstream, respectable American culture um, and both science and I think the church very much want to be a part of that. They want to per be perceived as respectable. Um, some of the stuff we're talking about here, right? Um, well, like John Heinerman's book, right? In which Heinerman argues, um, and Heinerman is a, a LDS UFO researcher and writer. And he argues in his book that there are creatures. Um, his book is called People in Space. And he argues that there are people moving on the moon, people moving on, on the sun. Um, he cites Joseph Smith for this. Right. And he cites other 19th century LDS um, leaders for this. This would not necessarily have been perceived as disrespectable or fringy in the 19th century. There were a lot of people then who actually speculated that there were civilizations on the moon. That was staunchly in the mainstream then. Now it is fringe. It is mm -hmm. pseudoscience uh, because it is not something that big science, the mainstream of science in America, will accept. And the church as a whole, I think, very much wants to be seen as part of that mainstream 
respectable American culture. Especially after like jettisoning like polygamy or something like that and wanting to not appear fringe in any Mm -hmm. way. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. I got to ask you this question. Now you walk away from your research now. Do you believe in UFOs or at least believe in those who say they have witnessed them? What's the way you'd want to answer that? I get asked this a lot about Benny and Barney Hill's experience, Uh right? And here's what I will say about their experience. Um, I think they did see something strange, um, a strange light in the sky, something they could not identify, something that by its definition was an an unidentified flying object. What that thing was, I don't know. Um, I don't know that anybody knows. Um, I also think that the story of the abduction that they they told was the product of hypnosis. Well, kind of hypnotic confabulation, mm. as one of their doctors put it, right? Um, that it was an expression maybe of their emotional truth, but it did not actually, actually represent what happened to them. So what do you hope readers in general and Latter-day Saints in particular take away from your book? Oh, you know, I some of these themes that I've been discussing, right? I think what's very interesting about UFOs is the ways they make us interrogate what we believe science is, what we believe religion is, where the boundaries of those are, and that they're not natural, right? What is scientific and what is not scientific is not inherent to the thing itself. It's a label that we put on it that has a lot to do with other things that are going on. Um, And the same, I think, is true with religion. Um, We talk in the 20th century as though, and the 21st century as well, as though there is a clear and obvious distinction between science and religion, that they are two things that maybe are in conflict. Um, That's just not the case, right? It's a cultural product of our own anxieties and how we think about these categories. The name of the book again is The Abduction of Betty and Barney Hill, Alien Encounters, Civil Rights, and the New Age in America. Matthew Bowman, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And thanks to Peggy Fletcher Stack. Always a pleasure. And to our producer, Christopher Samuels. We remind you that you can keep up on all the happenings in and about the church by subscribing to the Salt Lake Tribune's free Mormon Land newsletter. Just go to sltrib.com to sign up and we'll talk again next time on Mormon Land.